Chronicles chapter 11. If you were here Wednesday night, you heard a wonderful message by Brother Hera, and he told us that, that I think you said maybe even months before, God had begun to deal with you about that exact same verse and, 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 and even though those exact scriptures. And so Wednesday night, Brother Harris said, well, you know what? If God gave it to me, I don't think God changes his mind. And so Brother Harris preached about killing lions on a, in, a, in a pit or a snowy pit, whatever it might be. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And I'm going to keep this streak alive. We'll see where it goes. I figure if it works so good for them, I might as well try it out myself. First Chronicles chapter 11 tells the story of David's mighty men. And as Brother Price and Brother Hera have so eloquently talked about uh, Beniah, if you'll let me, maybe we'll start there, but I won't talk about the pit, I won't talk about the snow, but I do want to talk about Beniah. And as I was listening to these two messages go forth, the Lord just began to impress upon me. And I'm not trying to just be cute. I really believe there's another message that God wants you and I to hear. And uh, so Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of, Kab- of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. And he struck down two heroes of Moab. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Some have said it was two heroes. Some have said it was two platoons. It, it really, I don't care how you look at it because it's a, it's a pretty incredible feat. He also went down and struck a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. This is where I want to focus for just a moment. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, and Beniah went down with him, went to him with a staff, and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty but did not obtain to the three. And David set him uh, on, over his bodyguard. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, uh, and, and, and we'll go through it and then we're going to get into it. But I believe that, that you and I, we need to understand that when it comes to uh, fighting some battles, sometimes it's a lot of fun to use their own weapons against them. Use their own weapons against them. Why don't we pray and let the word of the Lord speak to us. Father, we thank you and we give you glory and praise. And I pray right now that you would let your spirit be with us. Let your word preach once again to each one of us that we would hear it and receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. You might be seated. Uh, have any of you, you ho- hopefully in, a, in, a, in a, a fun way, maybe you didn't think it was really fun, but uh, you know, I, I hope and pray none of you really ever got into a fight and you pulled out a weapon and someone ripped it out of your hand and used it against you. I mean, maybe some of you brawlers have done that, but my, I, I don't have any of those stories. I'm, I, I, I'm, I don't consider myself a chicken, but I really don't like to get hit. And uh, so I went through my life with the philosophy of whatever it takes not to get hit because I didn't like being hit. I, I, I just despised that. And so whatever it took for me not to get hit, I would do it, but uh, I, I like to wrestle, and, and I did a lot of that as a kid. We would wrestle and tussle and go there, and and uh, uh, around our house, that was something we did. We'd wrestle dad. Every once in a while, we'd wrestle mom, and I'll tell you, wrestling dad was a lot better than wrestling mom because she would beat us every time. It didn't, whatever it took, um, belt, shoe, iron, didn't matter. 
But you ever been wrestling or having fun and, and in the middle of that, things change and maybe you were using a Nerf gun or you were doing something and they took it from you and they whooped you with the own thing you had in your hand? It's kind of embarrassing. And when I begin to read this, I, I told you, if you're going to keep me in the Bible for two sermons straight uh, in the same place, I'm bound to let the Word continue to speak, and that's what it did. When you look at the story, Beniah, I, I want you to catch it. Beniah was a mighty man. He had already struck down two heroes. Uh, he had already jumped into a pit <coughs> and faced a lion. And, and each of these two men have done it. I'm not going to re-preach it, but I think the understanding of why it's so important, it's not just enough that he fought a lion. I mean, come on now. But he fought it in a snowy pit where the footing would have been slippery, where, where the, uh, number one, I think the, the advantage always goes to the lion. But my goodness, when, when you've got four feet and claws that you can sink in the snow, and I don't even know what kind of shoes they wore back in these days, uh, you'd have to think that Beniah was some incredible man to take on uh, the two heroes of, heroes of uh, uh, there of, of, of Moab and then also the lion. But I love how the Bible just casually inserts some things. There was an Egyptian, a great man, five cubits tall. A cubit is about 18 inches or so, which means that that, that, that giant was seven and a half feet tall. Now, we, we, our resident giants were the Andy and, and uh, how, how tall are you, Andy? Where you at? Six, seven. Six, seven. This dude is seven and a half feet tall. Can you imagine the giant of a man? He had a spear. The Bible says that, that, that the, the, the shaft of the spear was like a, a weaver's beam. And, and the best way I can describe that is, can you imagine, you know, we, we think of spears, and we, I, I, hopefully you've seen, whether you've seen a, a, a movie or, or you've seen a, uh, some sort of a you know, passion play, and, you know, you see the little spears, they usually a little one inch, maybe one and a quarter inch dowel rod, and it's got that, and it looks good, and I, I'm sure they, they use that uh, with great, uh, uh, you know, it, it worked, but here's a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam, I mean, you're talking three to four inches of a beam of wood that had a, a, a spearhead on the top. This was a mighty uh, a weapon. And, and, and here comes Benaiah, and the Bible says Benaiah, he had a staff. He had a stick. And he walks up. Now, this is the English standard. Maybe it says it a little bit differently in the King James and other places. But as you know, this has been the Bible for the last year or so that I've been reading and just letting myself get, in, get immersed in it. And I like what the English standard says. He went down to that giant with a staff and he snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand. You don't get any bigger, bolder, badder than that. You just walk up to a seven and a half foot dude. You just, I don't know what he did. You take that weaver's beam looking spear out of his hand. You just snatch it out of his hand like he's some kid. And then to make matters worse, you kill him with his own spear. It's interesting. You don't know the name of the Egyptian, but you know the name of Benaiah. I love it. Those stories when you use their weapons against him. Does anybody remember another place in the Word of God where someone used a weapon that belonged to the enemy but used it against him? In fact, it's very interesting. It's another guy that uh, Benaiah is closely connected to. It's another guy.
guy that fought some lions and bears. Name of David. You know David, some say he was between 12 and 16 years old when he went out to face Goliath and I don't have time to tell you the whole story and you know do all that again but, but here it is, David goes out there and, and, and uh, Saul had heard about it and Saul tried to put his own armor on David which by the way, just as a, just as a side note, okay we like to think of David as a little tiny kid and you know we, we put armor on and you can imagine the, 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 the helmet kind of going all the way down to his lips and you know but, but the Bible says and if you look closely at the story of David you'll find that David before he killed Goliath David was the armor bearer for Saul which tells me that he was big enough to carry the armor of Saul and so I would like to just tell you for just a moment as an aside note to this message that David I believe could have fit in Saul's armor and David could have used Saul's armor but the key is what David said. David said this armor doesn't fit me. David said I've not proven this armor. This is not what I'm used to fighting in. That's just a kind of a side note. But, but David says, let me do it the way I know. Give me my staff. Give me my sling. He walks down to the brook and he picks up five smooth stones. He puts them in his pocket and he goes out to meet Goliath. And Goliath is, is cursing and making fun and, and just anything he can do to talk trash and smack against uh, the children of Israel. And David just begins to look and he says, look, I come to you. In the name of the Lord. And he begins to wail that, that sling round and around. And with the accuracy that was honed by days and nights on the backside of a desert when he didn't have a lot to do except thump stumps that were, uh, you know, kind of sitting in the way. And David let that stone go and God grabbed a hold of that stone and sunk it into the forehead of that giant named Goliath, some nine and a half foot tall or so. And Goliath fell down and the Bible says, that the stone killed him. He was done. But old David, he runs over there. And the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran over, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, meaning uh, Goliath's sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it and I believe again this is Brandon I got a great imagination some of you don't like this kind of imagination but I'm a guy and I like these action packed stories David picks up a sword that was bigger than any sword he had ever picked up raises it up and maybe David was a strong man but I have to think that sword was a little bit to handle and he lops off Goliath's head and he's got Goliath's sword in one and he's got Goliath's head in another and you talk about put a hurting on the enemy. That was their champion. That was who they had put all of their eggs in the basket and David used his own sword against him. The more I begin to look and the more I begin to understand, I begin, that, I begin to believe that that principle still applies today in the lives of you and I. I'm amazed when I begin to look at our enemy and, and both Brother Price and Brother Hera did a great job connecting the lion in the pit with the lion that goes about seeking whom he may devour that we call Satan. But I want you to just let me take you on a journey and let me tell you how you have the permission and the ability to turn the tide on the enemy that comes against your flesh and you can use his own weapons against him. I don't preach a lot about the angels. I don't, 
I, I, I don't, you know, uh, the, the Bible, although it says a lot, I just don't tend to dwell in that. You know, most of them are not mentioned by name. We know of Gabriel, the messenger angel. The reason we call him the messenger angel is because he's the one that seems to show up when God wants to give a message to somebody. We talk about Michael, the warring angel. He's the one that goes to war. You find it in several places in the Word of God. If you've been around the Bible and are familiar with it, you've heard about seraphims and cherubs and different types of angels. But of all of the angels, there is one that probably is described most, and that is, you find it in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. It perhaps is unveiled with a phrase that says, O Lucifer, son of the morning. In fact, Lucifer himself was called the bright and the morning star, if you will. It was that reference to the brightest star that is seen at dawn when the sun begins to peek up over the horizon, yet you still see a star. Lucifer existed. He was an angel, and he had the privilege of walking in the presence of God. In fact, if you begin to look in Ezekiel chapter 28, you begin to see how they describe Lucifer. Lucifer, and, and I don't know how this all goes about. You're going to have to allow the imagination of, of God's word to kind of put the picture together. The Bible says that Lucifer, he, he had nine stones that covered him. Carnelian and Peridot, Moonstone and Beryl and Onyx and Jasper, Lapis Lazuli and Turquoise and Emerald. Begins to say how incredibly detailed these little golden bezels that, that held those jewels in place. It begins to tell us that there, Lucifer, he had something akin to tambourines or tabrets that were covering him. So that every step he took, there was a jingle. It was, he was the anointed cherub that covereth. He had a privilege, and I, I don't have time to go in it, but you can look through uh, the work of what a cherub. I had taken Ezekiel chapter 1 when, when Ezekiel saw the wheel in the middle of the wheel and he saw this vision of God, and it seems to indicate that there were angels that bore the throne of God in the vision that he saw. But he was there. He was the one that, that was there in the presence of God. He was the one that ministered to God before what we would consider time began. But Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 tells us about the fall of Lucifer. It says, how thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which did weakest the nations? For you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God and I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And they that see you will narrowly look upon you. That means kind of cast an eye and look at you funny. They will narrowly look upon you and consider thee saying, Is this the one who made the earth to tremble and did shake the nation, who made the world a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? And all the kings of the nations, even all of them lie in glory, everyone in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as though the raiment of those that is slain thrust through with the sword that go down into the stones of a pit as a carcass trodden under feet. Now that's a big mouthful, but that's the fall of Lucifer. From walking in the presence of God to thrown out of heaven. The demise of Lucifer was simple. 
He got tired of reflecting the glory of God. Remember, he was covered in all of these incredible stones and, and, and precious gems. And when he would walk into heaven and, the, and God would, would be there. Go back to, to Revelation and it says when we, you and I get the privilege of walking on the streets of gold. When we get there, the Bible says you're not going to need a lamp. You're going to need, not need any chandeliers. You're not, not going to need any light because Jesus is the light. And that's all you need. Well, that was the same in heaven. The Lord reflected the glory or or the Lord was shining in glory and Lucifer reflected it. Can you imagine that every step he took, those jewels would dance in the light of the glory. but, But he became tired of worshiping the creator. Lucifer conspired with one third of the angelic beings. In the corners and shadows of deceit, they plotted against God. Lucifer's pride and ego and self-exaltation grew, and he said, I think I can be like God. They marched against the throne. An incredible battle must have taken place only in the sense of the numbers. It wouldn't have really been much of a fight, if you will. But God said, you know what? I'm going to kick you out. And one-third of the angels and Lucifer were kicked out of heaven. Mighty was the fall. From the mountain of God to the plummeting towards the earth, he was laid low. I've preached before, and I'm not going to take a lot of time, but I've preached before to tell you that God was grieved because he lost a worshiper. Those nine stones that covered uh, the the visage of Lucifer, I, I think it's interesting that when God created the tabernacle and the plan and the, and the covenant that I preached a little bit about this morning, that when he was looking for someone to worship him, that he chose you and I, if you will, he chose those Jews. And when it came to the priest, he ordained the priest. And it's very interesting, and I think there's a great correlation that when you read in Exodus chapter 28, that there was a chess piece that the priest would wear. It had 12 stones on it. In rows of four, or 16 rather, four rows with four. It had carnelian and peridot and emerald. It had turquoise and blue lapis lazuli and moonstone and jacinth and agate and amethyst and beryl and onyx and jasper. And all of those stones were set in a gold filigree. And I believe it was a way of God saying, uh, Lucifer, you had this privilege, but you lost it. And so I'm going to give it to this priesthood. They wore a covering of gems. They wore a covering of gold. But instead, God gave more glory to the priests than even Lucifer had. For they got 12 stones where Lucifer only got nine. A third more a reflection of God's glory. Maybe just a way to kind of push against Lucifer and remind him of the third the angels that fell you could go on you could find that there was additional clothing that the priests wore and at the bottom of it there were bells and pomegranates so that they would move and they would, 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 would make noise and music when they would go into the presence of God you would find a little bit more that there was a lampstand in the tabernacle and that was the only light that that tabernacle had. And so when those priests would walk into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, they would shine the gold and the emeralds and all of that was there. And day in and day, in, uh, day, in and day out, the priest's duty was to minister to Jehovah. They bore the ark. They carried it everywhere it went. They protected and they covered the holy presence of God. And it was just like what Lucifer had. But you're asking, how do we use 
the things of Lucifer against him? Well, first off, God did it. Because God was not satisfied with the ritualistic offerings of the Old Covenant. It just didn't quite reach the same glory that he had in heaven. And so we could go through generations after generations. The tabernacle plan, although there was worship, it lacked the spontaneity. And so deity became humanity. God became flesh, dwelt among a fallen people. That spotless lamb bore the sins of countless generations on an old rugged cross. The unblemished sacrifice was nailed to a cross. The blood that atones for all was spilled. Fast forward a few weeks. Just a common people gathered in unity in an upper room. 120 of them, if you will. And God came down and filled that upper room. Acts chapter 2. And God took up residence in their heart. And what the law was trying to do, forgive and atone, Christ did by his sacrifice. I preached just a little bit this morning in 2 Corinthians about the glory of the New Testament. But I would tell you the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. It means that you and I, we exist to reflect the glory of God. It's not your glory It's not your abilities. If you can sing, it's not because you're a great singer. You are there to reflect the glory of God. You are taking the place of Lucifer. The Bible talks about being clothed in the garments of salvation. The Bible talks about us bearing the presence of God. The Bible talks about that you and I are now created and we have the privilege of forever worshiping the Savior. I would tell you today that Lucifer is beside himself with jealousy. I've thought about this and it blows my mind because we talk so much about the grace of God and the mercy of God. Anybody here never sinned? No, I didn't see any. Well, I see one, but I think you just lied, so thus you've just sinned. <laughs> All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. My goodness, if I could read the rap sheet uh, of your sins, uh, some of you wouldn't even want some of us around. But yet God says it doesn't matter what you've done, I'll forgive you. Now I'll be honest, I don't have an answer for this. I don't know why there is no forgiveness for Lucifer. And you have to think. Lucifer says, how in the world could God love this broken, ugly, sinful people and give them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance and meanwhile I'm relegated to the backside of nowhere and the thing that I have to look forward to is a pit in hell. He doesn't want to admit it, but Lucifer would long love to do anything to get back into the presence of God. He would give anything to attend to Jehovah and he can't get over the fact that fallen humanity has taken his place. And so, this is where I'm getting at. And so Lucifer uses some weapons against us. The first thing that Lucifer likes to do is he likes to try to get you on the same path that he was on. I don't need God. I'm better than God. 
And Lucifer will do anything to jump in your life and get you off of, uh, of the track of God. He'll try to get your ego up. He'll try to get your, your, your self and your conceited nature going. And he would try to steer you down. If you would just quit worshiping the creator, if you had just become fixated on your own selfish desires and arrogant plans, then he would win. It's interesting. I... Uh, I pulled out three things, three weapons that Satan likes to use. And I'm sure there's others and some of you may even think of them and that would be awesome. But the first thing that he uses is the knowledge that he has of the Word of God. You say, Brother Buford, what do you mean by that? Well, it's simple. And again, I know I've said this and I feel like I'm repeating and being a broken record, but I think we've got to see it one more time. In the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve were there. Lucifer comes up, slithering up like a snake. And he says to Adam and Eve, and especially Eve, he says, "Do you?" and, and I'm paraphrasing, do you know what God said concerning this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you know God's word? That's what, that, that's what, what Lucifer said. Do you know God's word? And if you will read the story of Adam and Eve, you will find that Eve did not know God's word. Eve says, well, I know God said we can't eat of the tree, we can't touch the tree, we can't be around the tree. And and all of a sudden Lucifer says, I know more about God's word than she does, so I can twist it. One of the greatest attacks of the enemy since time has begun is his ability to use the word of God and confuse those that don't know it. You know how many people I have talked to, Brother Peters, that that confess Christianity? They love God, but they've never read the Bible one time. I've told this story before. My wife had a professor at Lindenwood College in a religious class, and and, and that religious professor made a statement that was just so asinine that that there's no way. I mean, and and my wife, she, she, she raised her hand and she said, Professor, that is not at all true. In fact, and she began to quote John chapter 1 and said, in fact, the Bible says the exact opposite of what you just said. And I quote, these were his exact words, I've never read that. You've got a PhD in, in, in theology and you, you've never read John chapter 1, you need your money back, dude. I want to tell you right now, one of the best ways that you can turn the weapon of Satan against him is for you to start grabbing a hold of your Bible and for you to start reading it and for you to start letting it soak in you. Why do I know this is true? Because the Lord himself proved it. Jesus walked out into the garden, into the wilderness uh, after he was baptized by John the Baptist for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he got done fasting, and you know he was weak, you know he was tired, there was a spiritual battle that was about to take place. And Satan came to him, and Satan began to tempt Jesus. I know you've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, I know you're so hungry, you're starting to see food and everything you look at. Bible says he was tempted like as we are. And I'm going to tell you, I fast one meal and I start thinking these seats look like a hamburger. It's like those cartoons. And if you've seen any of the old cartoons, you know it, you know. And especially Sylvester and Tweety Bird. Sylvester's hungry and he looks in that cage and instead of seeing little yellow Tweety Bird, he sees a, 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 you know, one of them a, a rotisserie chickens sitting there. 
Jesus was hungry. Don't, don't, don't escape that. Jesus was not walking in some supernatural power. He was tempted like as you are. And Satan came and said, look, if you just pick up that rock right there, if you're really God, you could speak and it would turn into one of Lambert's throat rolls. And you have to think the temptation was there. Just like some of you got really tempted when I said Lambert's throat rolls. I'm going to lose the rest of you right now. You're just gone. Got this faraway look in your eyes. But what did Jesus say? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. And Satan began to stomp his feet. And he said, man, it worked for Adam and Eve, but I can't mess with him because he knows the word. The problem is Satan hadn't quite figured out that he was the word. John chapter 1, he was the word made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of the Father as the only begotten. And so it is, can I tell you, one of the greatest ways that you can combat the lies of Satan is for you to hear this word, study this word, learn this word, saturate yourself with this word so that when the enemy comes in and says you don't need to be baptized to be saved, you can step back and say you're crazy. The word of God says he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Or when the enemy comes in and says ah, all you gotta do is just be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, you say no, that, that's only half truth. The Bible says there is no other name given among uh, under heaven among men whereby we must be saved that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess there is no other name young people I'm telling you the only way you're going to survive by a, 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 a school and high school and college is for you to get involved in the word of God because they will tell you anything and everything the enemy says it doesn't matter what gender you are. The enemy says it doesn't matter how you, and I'm trying to be, be, be kind because I realize we have children, but the enemy says it doesn't matter what orientation you are. You need to start reading Romans chapter 1 and find that that's not exactly true. In fact, go all the way back to Genesis. The Bible says, and he made them male in female. California, I know you got a lot of other things on your driver's license requirements and you got all these other different genders and I don't know where you got it, but I'm more interested in what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says there's only two genders, male or female. And you don't change it later. I'm telling you, the great, one of the greatest ways you can turn the weapon on Satan is to use God's word against him. He knows it, and he thinks you don't. And because he knows it, he knows how to... Have you, any of you ever played that game? I think it's called Boulder Dash. Any of you ever played the game Boulder Dash? And correct me, Sister Stacy, if I'm wrong, but I think Boulder Dash is the one where you, you have a, a fake word and you got to make up some definition that sounds right and you hope people guess your definition. Is that correct? And so you try to sound smart. And so Satan comes in and he sounds smart. And it sounds right. And it even sounds biblical, but he likes to leave just one word out or maybe add one word. But oh, when you've handled the real thing enough, 
you begin to catch when somebody's wrong. I, I love the fact that we've got Mason and Zoe and they're Bible quizzing. And I've seen, I think there's other people that have been through Bible quizzing. And, and I like it. I've even had it in my ministry. I'll say something and I'll have somebody come up to me. And I love it when it's a kid. I mean, I, I, I accept it you, from you adults. And I don't mean this to, to say I don't, I don't I, you know, I get mad when you come up. But I like it when the kids come up and says, but Buford, you, you quoted that verse wrong. You know why that excites me? Because I want to make sure they're hearing it right. Because the best way you can attack the devil is to use his own tricks against him. The second thing you can do, one of the great ways that Satan likes to, to mess with you and I is he loves to use discouragement. And if you ever, and you don't have to raise your hand, but I need you to be thinking. And if you ever let Satan hit you with that guilt and condemnation, things that you thought was under the blood, things that you've even repented about, but you close your eyes at night and the devil plays that movie back to you, if you will, and you begin to see it and he reminds you of that and he's constantly beating you up about it and he's constantly saying, I can't believe you were that person. I can't believe you did that. There's no way God loves you. And he throws that discouragement to you. Can I tell you, you can turn that against him? All right, that's fine. All right, Satan. You're right. I was that sinner. I did those things. I walked according to the course of this world. I followed my own fleshly lust. But I found a God that loves me. But let me take you back to your past, Satan. At least I wasn't walking in heaven and thought that I was big enough to take on the God of creation. And guess what? You're the one that's looking low. And you've heard people say this. And I remember a little Carmen song that says it. When Satan reminds you of his past... You remind him of his future. You, you see, I know this may sound a little trite and it may sound a little cute, but I kind of think it works because Satan does not have any supernatural power per se. And you can get Satan aggravated when you start saying, no, I've been redeemed. By blood divine, oh glory, glory, Christ is mine. And you begin to say, Satan, tell you what, I challenge you. Why don't you take another trip to heaven? Because obviously Satan has some access to heaven. You see it in the book of Job that Satan went and, and presented himself to God when he wanted to get ahead of Job. And, but, but why don't you tell him, say, Satan, why don't you go to heaven, go to the recorder of, of, uh, uh, of stories there in heaven. Why don't you ask God to show you the Lamb's book of life? And Satan, I promise you, you will not find the sin that you're reminding me of in the Lamb's book of life because I have been baptized I've been washed in the blood I've been sanctified in the spirit I've been touched and so Satan you can try and you can throw it but you're not going to find it in heaven but I've got enough on you in this word of God that reminds me of what you've done and it reminds me of where you're going you're taking that big old spear out of that giant's hand and you're using it on him. But the third one is the praise. You know, Satan's praise gave him an opportunity to walk into the presence of God. He would walk into the presence of God and, and, and every step he took would be music. The, 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 the stones that covered him, and I don't understand at all how it, how it all went, but just this, this, you have to understand that everything about Lucifer was designed to praise 
God. And Lucifer's praise led him into the presence of God. Because if Lucifer's, you know, th this is why I think the, the punishment that Lucifer's going to receive is just so brilliant. What better place to send a being that requires light to shine than a pit of ultim ultimate darkness? Because in that pit, I don't care how many stones you were covered with, there's no glory there. But, but, but this is what just excites me. Our praise is not what bring is not what brings us into the presence of God. Instead, the Word of God tells me something a little bit differently. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that God inhabits the praises of His people. And so you can take the praise that used to bring Satan into the presence of God, but now our praise brings God to us. And Lucifer can't stand it. Because what that means is no matter where you are, you're not in heaven yet. We don't have the luxury of walking on those streets of gold yet. We have to walk in this place right now. We have to walk in the, in, in the situations and the circumstances and the hurt and the pain. We have to walk through the cancers and we have to walk through the divorces and we have to walk through the hurts and we have to walk through the abuses. But the Lord says you can begin to lift up the name of Jesus and I will come to where you are and I will inhabit the praises of his people. And I can only imagine Satan is beside himself because all of the sudden, all of the weapons that he's used to have, you've now snatched out of his hands and you've turned it around on him and what he thought for evil. God turns to good. And I believe some of us need to activate that macho uh, swagger, if you will. I'm going to pick on you, Zane. I try not to pick on my kids too much. I, I don't mind picking on my mama, but, you know, I have to live with my kids. But yesterday, I went and got some food, and, uh, forget how it got started but Zane said I can race you and I can beat you I ain't ran in a long time I, I don't tend to run a lot as you can tell Zane is now about half an inch to an inch taller than me but that that, that pride began to rise up and I began to talk a little smack to him I said son I can beat you I had my cowboy boots on. So we went inside. We put the food down. I let him go get his tennis shoes on. We walked out in the backyard. We got Zoe out there so she could say go, and we were going to race across the yard. It's a pretty good clip, probably 60, 70 yards. We're going to race to the dog kennel and touch it. And we took off. And I gave it everything I got. And I left Zane in the dust. And when I touched that fence, he was about five paces behind me. On boots, thank you. In boots, thank you. To be fair, 
Zane walked back in and ate all of his food and it took me 30 minutes to breathe enough before I could swallow something. I don't know that I'm going to race him a whole lot anymore. But I walked in that house. I couldn't breathe, but I walked in that house. Some of you need to have that same kind of walk. That same Benaiah swagger. You walk up to the enemy and you just snatch that spear out of his hand. And you say, I'm going to take the thing that you wanted to destroy me with. And I'm going to turn it on you. First off, I'm going to use God's word. You think you know it and you think you can trip me up, but I'm going to use God's word. And the more I use God's word, the more you're going to have to back up. I'm going to use that same discouragement and that same reminder of my past and my future. I'm going to turn it back on you. And I'm going to use the same praise that you used to have. Except this time, as I praise, God's going to inhabit the praises of his people. I wonder if we could stand all across this building. The beauty of this sermon is that, to be honest, I didn't exhaust the subject matter. And so I believe some of you, you could already think of some other ways that you could take some of the enemy's weapons. Some of you are already examining your own life and you're seeing your own uh, circumstances and you're saying, Satan, you threw this at me, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to let God turn it for good. And so I wonder right now, across this building. I don't know where you find yourself in it. I don't know what weapon you need to snatch out of his hand. I don't know what it is that you need to bring, but I think you need to exercise that right now. Maybe some of you just need to worship him. Maybe some of you need to say, Lord, I'm going to keep reading the word of God. Maybe some of you need to come into his presence, but why don't you come in the name of Jesus, and why don't you use their own weapons against them in the name of Jesus? Would you come, and would you talk with the Lord? Oh